I'm Thanasi Cabanas. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's foreign affairs podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the apparent rapprochement between Turkey and Egypt. And I'm joined by Nick Danforth, a senior visiting fellow at the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy, and Michael Wahid Hanna, a senior fellow here at the Century Foundation. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. So maybe, Nick, you can get us started by just setting the scene. Uh, What has been happening uh, between these two mid-level powers in the Eastern Mediterranean? Well, I should say from the beginning that I'm really excited to be on here and hear what an actual Egypt expert has to say about this. Because I think from the perspective of those of us who were focused on Turkey, uh, it really seemed like there actually wasn't that much going on initially. Uh, This seemed like a PR stunt from Ankara. Uh, This, the rapprochement between Turkey and Egypt happened in the context Uh, of Erdogan realizing things were going badly for him diplomatically, realizing Turkey was isolated uh, in the region at odds with a host of countries, Greece, Cyprus, Israel, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, trying to break out of this isolation, but not being really committed to changing any of the policies that created the isolation in the first place. And we can talk about what those are. Uh, So this happened in the context of Erdogan saying that you know, Ankara announcing that it was going to have a rapprochement uh, with Israel. It started talks with Greece. Uh, at one point, more implausibly, it was even saying it was on the verge of a rapprochement with Armenia. Uh, and initially, this all seemed like spin coming from Ankara. Uh, and this was accentuated when you know, the Turkish government had a habit of putting out falsely optimistic statements, sometimes including concrete claims about how they were on the verge of signing a maritime delimitation agreement with Egypt. Uh, or selling drones to Saudi Arabia, which were quickly contradicted by officials in those countries. Um, so it just I start all, about, all this off by saying that when we entered into this, you know, as the talk of rapprochement grew, particularly driven by uh, Turkish media leaks to pro-government newspapers in Turkey, uh, I, for one, and I think a lot of other Turkey-focused analysts, were very dismissive of it. It seemed like this was just another stage in this charm offensive. And by the way, this is happening when this is beginning in the winter, like uh, uh, b- before the U.S. election, or what? What's the time frame where this uh, where this started to change? And there were the real so right. The election occurs. Turkey announces it's also prepared to have a reset with the United States under Biden, which people found implausible. Uh, and yeah, last fall you begun to hear noises from Ankara about first intelligent contacts with uh, Egyptian officials. And you know, gradually growing more optimistic statements about the rapprochement they might have with Egypt in conjunction with the other claims they were making about rapprochements all around the region. This sort of came onto my radar uh, a few weeks ago with the uh, the announcement about Egyptian exiles in uh, in Turkey. Uh, Michael, uh, maybe you can also help us set the scene by telling us what happened there and, and with an eye towards explaining the significance of this, uh, this exile, uh, uh dissident and, and media presence in Istanbul. Sure. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I'm skeptical and have been skeptical as well. The one thing for me that has, um, tended to shift me away from thinking that this is simply a PR stunt is how bitter this relationship was. Um, so, you know, if we think about uh, relationships in the region, you know, 
Egypt and the UAE are maybe going to be at the end of the list of the countries where I would think that a plausible rapprochement um, might be on the agenda. Um, you know, if we remember how partisan Turkey was in Egypt, right? I mean, e Turkey took sides in Egyptian politics, um, and you know, Erdogan um, was seemed to have some kind of um, emotional uh, connection with with the aftermath of the coup. Um, obviously, he's the leader of a country. He's being pragmatic. Um, but, you know, Erdogan would flash the four-finger uh, uh, sign that came out of the, uh, the Rabah uh, protest and then massacre in, in August uh, 2013. Um, so, so this is viewed as like a Muslim Brotherhood solidarity in opposition to the, the leader of Egypt. Right. And so, you know, a, a, an incredibly bitter uh, relationship. Um, and so. Uh, to see Turkish media uh, and media elites begin to shift that discourse uh, and to talk about Egypt in pragmatic terms, um, from my perspective, I wondered what was up. You know, is this um, preparing for potential shifts in, in Turkish policy? Uh, and you mentioned one that we did see, right? I mean, we haven't seen uh, too much in terms of actual concrete policy change. Um, I would say the thing that did precede uh, this media step, which I'll, I'll touch on in just a second, um, was growing pragmatism uh, between Turkey and Egypt and Libya, right? And that's a place where um, both sides seem to have come off of their more maximalist uh, visions for the country, um, came close to potentially kind of getting into more direct conflict. Um, and have stepped back from that and now are seemingly being more pragmatic and have been in contact. Um, so that, for me, was the first place where we saw something uh, where we could say things looked different. Um, and you mentioned the steps in the media, uh, you know, the, mo the largest uh, organizations of, uh, of Egyptian uh, exiles, particularly from the Muslim Brotherhood, are in Turkey. Uh, they've establish these uh, satellite channels, which um, are obviously vociferously uh, anti-CC uh, and CC regime, uh, and have a, a constituency. People watch these uh, channels, and uh, Turkey uh, seems to have told uh, these channels and their presenters to tone down their criticism of Egypt and to tone down the, the nature of their, uh, their criticism of, of CC himself. Um, and, and obviously this caused a big stir within the exile community fears about what this might mean for the future. Um, but more importantly for our present discussion, you know, a real, a seemingly, um, real shift in how they were approaching an issue that is of high importance to Egypt. Egypt has, uh, has been imploring Turkey to deal with these channels, uh, doesn't like this, uh, you know, uh, real opposition. It has taken over uh, internally its own media superstructures, and uh, you know there there is no independent media left in Egypt, um, and um, this has been a sore spot for the Sisi regime, uh, and uh, they now I think are in a kind of wait and see policy, you know, writ large, but also with respect to this policy shift as well. So, what does this mean? What what is this going to look like in practice? 
And and I and I want to ask you both. Maybe Nick can can answer this first uh, about the significance uh, of the of the Turkey Egypt relationship uh, when we look at at the region, especially over the last ten years, where there's been so much intervention by not just. Uh, uh, international powers, but by regional powers, uh, Egypt seems to be in a lower tier of importance. And, you know, so we think of, I think of Turkey, Iran, uh, UAE, and Saudi as being in the in the upper tier of regional countries that are intervening around the region. Um, Egypt is, is a little lower down, although they've been active in the, the, the war in Libya, especially. Uh, and so I'm wondering uh, what, like, what's important about this relationship um, and, and, and how much significance does it have in terms of thinking about Turkey's aspirations to be a leader in the former Ottoman space? So I think that's a key question and a good opportunity to step back and look at how the Turkish-Egyptian relationship has gotten enmeshed in a much broader dynamic. Uh, Because as Michael said, it started out, I mean, there was a very personal dynamic to the tensions between Erdogan and Sisi. There was an ideological element, uh, all stemming from the coup that brought down Morsi. Um, You know, Erdogan not just seeing this kind of ideologically as a you know, Muslim Brotherhood ally being toppled, but also in the context of a series of coups in Turkey against pro-Islamist parties, you know, seeing this is very personal. And you know, there was a coup attempt against Erdogan in 2016. Uh, there was a real identification with it between him and Morsi, which, you know, as Michael said, has driven this um, in a way that now his pragmatism is struggling to uh, compensate for. But what I think made this so made this so relevant for the question you asked is that very quickly that the Turkish-Egyptian hostility uh, got caught up in evolving dynamics in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, and when you had, in 2010, 2011, natural gas discoveries uh, in the corner of the Eastern Mediterranean between Cyprus and Israel and Egypt, uh, you gradually had a developing relationship between uh, between these three countries first, later other countries got involved, Greece became a partner, uh, looking for ways to exploit this natural gas, export it to Europe. Um, in Turkey, there were, Israel in particular hoped to make Turkey a part of these efforts, uh, hoped to actually export this gas through Turkey. Uh, but unfortunately, Turkey, you know, at this point, not only had bad relationships with Egypt, uh, also undergoing renewed tensions with Israel, doesn't even recognize the Cypriot government. Uh, and so this what you know, evolved into the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum, uh, initially kind of purely focused on energy, took on a geopolitical uh, slant and became a way for a number of countries in the region that were increasingly worried, rightly or wrongly, by Turkey's behavior to begin to develop a you know, a forum in which they could articulate and expand on their common interests in, you know, and again, increasingly became seen as containing Turkey. Uh, and so that's, you know, I think that's the dynamic that made this, uh, you know, and then the fact that you then had Saudi Arabia and the UAE coming in on Israel's side when this conflict spilled over to Libya uh, is, you know, the the extent that Greece got involved, you had France coming in on Greece's side. Uh, and so this, you know, from Turkey's point of view, what began as a bilateral conflict with Egypt quickly became part of something much bigger, which they were on the wrong end of. 
um, brought together not only a lot of regional countries, but also pretty much all of the U.S.'s allies and partners in the region and a number of EU countries. Uh, so they, you know, one would have thought at that point, maybe the move would have been to repair relationships with the United States and the EU to try to break out of their isolation. Uh, instead, they almost seem to have taken the reverse approach. Egypt now seems to be the one country which they've made kind of plausible and consistent, and as Michael said, increasingly concrete efforts to improve ties with. Um, but now you kind of have a reverse dynamic wherein the fact that Egypt is part of this multilateral uh, and increasingly diverse coalition is actually now going to be a new obstacle to Turkey and Egypt improving ties. Well, and and I guess uh, from what you're saying, it doesn't it doesn't sound like Egypt is going to trade away uh, its position on the delineation of of natural gas borders uh, uh, just because Turkey tones down the vociferous criticism of CC on on exile TV stations. Well, so on on that point, you know, one thing to note here, and it's just a, a side note. So, you know, Greece and Egypt have delineated a maritime uh, boundary. Um, but I think, and this is this this is the Egyptian perspective of what that meant, um, is that in so doing, Egypt um, did not compromise Turkey's claims to its continental shelf in delineating um, uh, a, mar a maritime boundary, um, and so Egypt believes that it has sort of uh, dealt with Turkey in good faith. So this comes in this broader context of of uh, easing of relations uh, and tensions. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that remains out there. Um, but Egypt believes that it hasn't, uh, prejudiced Turkey's, um, ability to, uh, to delineate a maritime boundary. So it was able to please both, uh, both Greece and Turkey in its handling of that particular negotiation. Well, uh, that's the Egyptian perspective. <laughs> right. It's not the Turkish perspective, which is the, I mean, so what's the Turkish perspective on that, Nick? Well, I mean, this is the problem that Turkey with, you know, Turkey signed a, a maritime delimitation agreement with Libya uh, or with the GNA in particular that was uh, was a dramatic uh, extension of what had previously been understood as plausible Turkish claims in the region um, and pretty much dismissed, you know, widely recognized Greek claims um, would have pushed Turkey's maritime border up to, I think, 12 nautical miles away from the island of Crete. Wow. Uh, and so part of the dilemma now is that because uh, Turkey has staked out such an extravagant position, um, it's difficult, you know, from Turkey's official point of view now, the very signature of a uh, Greek-Egyptian delimitation agreement undermined Turkey's claims. Um, and by the same extension, the very idea that Turkey could sign an agreement with Egypt, uh, if you look at the map would actually fundamentally undermine what Greece sees as its, you know, Greece continues to claim as its maritime territory. So that's, I, without, there, there's just, the extent of Turkey's claims, and I guess you could add Greece's, make it you know, geographically impossible for Egypt to satisfy both of them, um, which is one of the reasons Turkey's optimism now, I think, about signing a delimitation agreement with Egypt seems, strikes observers, as so impossible. Yeah, so I, I just want to the only add the follow-up to that is that um, I think Egypt believes that the super-maximalist claims have to be dialed back, right? I mean, 
there is no way to satisfy Turkey's you know original claim. Um, and so I think Egypt assumes that if there is to be a kind of uh, moving forward of the relationship and a, and a sorting out in the Eastern Mediterranean that you know something has to give and, and from their perspective, it's the kind of the more maximalist uh, Turkish claims. We'll be right back after this break. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. Welcome back. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's international affairs podcast. I'm talking to Nick Danforth, a senior visiting fellow at the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy, and Michael Wahid Hanna, a senior fellow here at the Century Foundation. We're talking about Turkey and Egypt, um, and also the tangled mess of, of relationships in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, I want to pick up on what we were talking about before the break with the sort of natural gas conflict, and then as as sort of quickly as is reasonable, I want to bring in the 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 U.S. relationship as as it impacts all this. But first, let's let's try and and tie up uh, this question of of the gas claims because it it seems to me like um, like Turkey has pursued a pretty expansive uh, vision of its importance in the region, um, and it's proven that it can that it can even engage in overreach sometimes uh, or destabilizing actions like it did in, in Syria when it shot down the Russian plane and so on um, and bounce back. So even even if it does things that are widely viewed as, uh, uh, you know, delusional in its in its in its self image of, of power, it, it turns out that that it can weather those things and 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 not really be uh, uh, not suffer major consequences for it. Now, that's been happening for the better part of a decade. Um, and a lot of those conflicts are their 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 armed conflicts as in Syria and Libya or their political conflicts as in the support for uh, for Qatar and uh, and for the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, um, which all allow for a certain amount of ambiguity. Whereas drilling for natural gas in in contested waters is not uh, is is not a space where you can muddle through with uh, with ambiguity. So it's a sort of rubber meets the road test. Um, and I'm wondering, Nick, if you know if you see uh, a sort of this is a sort of catalyst for uh, Turkey having to decide what it wants and how hard it wants to push kind of maybe parallel to China in the, in, in, in the South China sea when, when the sort of diplomacy shifted into becoming a real, uh, uh, tangibly measured, uh, measured thing. Um, and, uh, and in that, um, in that sweepstakes, what leverage does, does Turkey have to, to get its way? Well, and that's what makes uh, Turkish foreign policy, Erdogan's foreign policy, uh, so hard to predict and, in the short term at least, sometimes effective, is that there is this striking contrast between the willingness to stake out uh, very bold, aggressive positions and sometimes defend them forcefully in ways that other countries don't expect, uh, but then dial back those claims 
uh, step away from them, compromise in ways that are also much more pragmatic than people anticipate. Uh, and so the, the question of the East Med uh, gas and Turkey's maritime delimitation claims is a perfect example of that. Um, you know, and it's Turkey did stake out these very maximalist claims uh, in with its agreement with Libya, which, as Michael said, you know, everyone kind of assumes if they really want to have a rapprochement with other countries in the region, they're going to have to dial back. Uh, and yet, I think even for a lot of people in Ankara, it's unclear how seriously Erdogan is taking these claims. Um, and whether, you know, for a potential rapprochement with Egypt, he'd be willing to, I don't think ever officially abandon them, but just kind of put them on the back burner. Um, and that's what we saw with Greece. You know, last summer, things really did escalate dramatically. Um, Turkey was drilling and doing exploratory drilling in contested waters. Uh, th there was a, you know, direct uh, confrontation. At one point, a Greek and Turkish warship actually collided with each other. Uh, the EU, which had been very slow to get tough with Turkey, was threatening sanctions. Um, and at that point, Erdogan backed down. And it's, you know, is now engaging in exploratory talks with Greece over solving this issue. No one thinks it's actually going to be solved, but they're glad that the drilling has stopped. Turkey's back to, you know, back to having talks. And so, you know, and this is why I think the, you know, however limited the steps that Turkey took against the Muslim Brotherhood uh, domestically were so striking because it was, you know, on what was seen as a very uh, serious ideological issue for Erdogan, in which I think a lot of people were skeptical and remain skeptical that he'll offer uh, real concessions. The fact that, you know, this was the first sign of something tangible that uh, he'd done you know, in pursuit of this rapprochement, made it suddenly seem like this business was a lot more serious. Um, and I think, I guess, I just add in the long term in Libya, this is going to be a big issue because you know we've seen you know the fighting. There was a moment last summer also when people were talking about Turkey and Egypt going to war over Sirte. Uh, that ended. That you know, and now there's been a pivot towards what seems like a more productive diplomatic approach, and yet you still have this question, and Turkey's been very sensitive about this in the uh, negotiations to create a unified Libyan government over what that would mean for the Turkish-Libya maritime deal. Um, and if, you know, is that something that Turkey would eventually be willing to give up if a government was formed in Libya that didn't recognize it? Uh, or would that be something serious enough to Ankara that it would uh, be willing to scuttle the negotiations in Libya? I to me, at least, it's unclear. And Michael, I mean, does, does Egypt have more leverage than it did uh, just even 10 or 15 years ago in, because of its regional posture, because of its military presence in Libya? Uh, or, or is it uh, really a, a, weaker, a weaker party in this setup? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, Egypt is a diminished power. There's no question that Egypt doesn't fill the same regional role that it did. Uh, and it's been, you know, steadily declining. It has invested a great deal in, in a kind of military modernization, particularly on the naval side, thinking very clearly about the Eastern Mediterranean and the Horn of Africa. Um, and, and it's important to note that, you know, Egypt-Turkey tensions um, are not just Eastern Med, they're not just Libya. Um, you know, Turkey has tried to be a player in the Horn of Africa uh, and in parts of Sub-Saharan Africa where Egypt is um, quite engaged. Um, there were big Egyptian fears about what 
Turkey was doing with the previous Sudanese government uh, around Suakin Island and the possibility of, of basing. Um, and of course, Nick mentioned previously, you know, uh, the dispute with, uh, or I don't know, maybe it was euthanasia, the dispute with, uh, with Qatar, the, the sort of uh, Saudi-led blockade, uh, where Turkey came in behind uh, uh, Qatar. Um, and so Egypt and Turkey were on opposite sides of, of uh, several big regional divides. Um, so it's not that Egypt has kind of added leverage, um, but there are numerous uh, geopolitical friction points that uh, exist uh, and mutual suspic suspicions about what um, uh, these two countries uh, are up to. Uh, and there is, uh, and, and I think it's important to note that I think it's waning a bit, but there has been this ideological element. You know, Egypt's regional policy in, in the early years after the coup were basically a direct projection of its domestic political priorities. Uh, and so, you know. You mean Islam, Islamism, Muslim Brotherhood style Islamism? Uh, Islamism writ large. Um, uh, and so, you know, Egypt is not particularly worried about the sectarian divide in the region. And so they're much more concerned about ISIS in Iraq and ISIS in uh, Syria, say, and not not particularly hung up with, with sectarian issues um, and uh, very anti-Muslim uh, Brotherhood, uh, which pushes them into conflict with Turkish positions like in Libya. Um, but we've seen recently a toning down of that, I think, ideological element um, on both sides to a degree, um, early stages of that. Uh, but the way in which Egypt has pivoted in Libya seems to suggest that they are trying to become slightly more pragmatic. We've seen the same with uh, some of the Palestinian factions in Hamas. Um, and so, you know, that's where we find ourselves. I don't think that Egypt has a lot of leverage. Um, but it has a lot of points of friction that have to be uh, worked out with Turkey. One one last point here uh, is, uh, you know, Turkish-Egyptian relations didn't rupture in, in 2013. Uh, they obviously went into a much, uh, uh, you know, um, a much more difficult period, but trade has grown. Um, you know, so this isn't, this isn't a case where they have to reestablish diplomatic con diplomatic contact uh, or even business contacts. You know, alongside this very poor uh, formal relationship between the governments, uh, business has continued to grow. I mean, they signed an agreement in two thousand and five, I believe, uh, and um, so trade ties are remain uh, pretty robust. All these things that you guys are saying raise a, a question for me that I hadn't thought about exactly in this way. Uh, when we when we look at at all the regional tensions and the the sort of uh, the, the cold wars and hot wars within the region, uh, we we often hear about the U.S. Iran uh, 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 tension. We hear about the interventions by by Israel or things funded by the Gulf powers. Uh, but it, it seems to me like we we might be underestimating uh, the 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 importance of these mid mid level like Egypt or mid to large level like Turkey uh, powers capacity to let's say continue or, and deepen violent conflict and continue and deepen crises around the region even if some of these other uh, uh, political cleavages are resolved and uh, and I'm wondering if if what we might be in for uh, is a really protracted period where 
wars like Libya's and Syria's uh, and and conflicts like the one we're talking about in depth between Turkey and and Egypt uh, become ongoing drivers of of conflict, both armed and and political, because even mid-level or or weak client powers like Egypt turn out to have significant uh, ability to project power uh, around the region. They're they're not simply passive objects in in the relations uh, and and the conflicts going on. Is, is Is that something we should be thinking more about? Well, you know, I think in... You know, the, the post-uprisings, you know, regional landscape has changed. And you touch on one of the key points, and that is the willingness of regional powers uh, to project power and to intervene militarily um, in other countries, right? So that that's a kind of new feature. Um, you know, it's something that, you know, that looks quite different than the preceding years, Um you know, obviously there are things like the intervention in Yemen in the 60s by Egypt. So it's not that it's unprecedented, but it's something that that has really accelerated in this post-uprisings landscape. Turkey has been uh, a main driver um, of that in, in Libya, in Syria. Uh, but we've seen this from the Saudis in the UAE and Yemen, um, Libya and uh, Egypt and, and, and the UAE and, and Libya. Uh, and so, you know, Russia obviously intervened directly in Syria, is involved in Libya as well. Uh, so, yes, I mean, this this um, interventionism uh, and willingness to use military force and to let loose military conflicts now um, across the region are clearly an, an important and very um, troubling factor in, in uh, regional competition now. You know, it's not in any way, just the Cold War. Intramural armed conflicts between uh, rival sets of U.S. partners, right? I mean, in, in, in Libya in particular, we have on both sides of this war powers that are U.S. partners or in Turkey's case, formal allies, uh, often using both sides using U.S. supplied weapons to fight each other, uh, which which seems uh, I, I don't know, maybe strategically it's not so dangerous. I don't know, but it seems like a, it seems like a development worth, uh, paying close attention to. For Egypt and Turkey, I wonder if some of this as well, um, is trying to be a productive diplomatic, uh, player in the region. Right. And so, you know, maybe they are not directly engaging with the United States, but from the U S perspective, um, Turkey and Egypt are big headaches all the time on domestic policy and regional policy. Um, and so I, I wonder if in the back of both of their minds, uh, the attempt to actually do something constructive and to dial down tensions um, doesn't have the United States kind of as a kind of ulterior motive that for these two countries to be seen to be, uh, you know, trying to dial, dial down tensions for once as opposed to, you know, engaging in, in more maximalist claims and, and stoking not just tension, but actual military conflicts in the, in the region. Nick, go ahead. Yeah, I'd add two things about that. I mean, one, no, I very much agree with you. Um, I feel like we're having an increasingly heated debate in Washington about the U.S. role in the Middle East, U.S. interventions in the Middle East uh, in regards to retroactively about Syria, today still about Yemen. And I think it's fair to say that on both sides of this debate, there's sometimes a tendency to ignore the agency of uh, countries like Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt that um, maybe always, maybe increasingly, 
are going to have their own policies and are increasingly capable of uh, causing problems and sometimes solving problems independent of what Washington wants them to do. Uh, so that's, I think that's something more people here should be attentive to. Um, and I also agree, I mean, this is why, you know, it's not like a agreement between Erdogan and Sisi is going to herald the miraculous rebirth of the liberal international order and the Eastern Mediterranean, but it's still, you know, it's a positive development precisely because, you know, given the alternative, given you know, the, the alternative is increasing fragmentation, increasing violence, um, you know, whatever cynical motives both sides might have, um, their own you know, internal dynamics, or as Michael said, a desire to uh, temper criticism from the United States, you know, that's something worth supporting. Um, and, you know, again, the fact that the fighting in Libya, at least temporarily, has stopped, you know, that's good news for everyone. I mean, from a U.S. perspective, we have this this uh, this sort of crazy disproportional amount of of our foreign military aid that goes into this region. We have so much, uh, you know, so many strategic headaches and and some serious threats. Uh, we're mired in in myriad myriad spots. And when we look over over this landscape, there are four countries that have a, a particularly close. Uh, relationships with the United States and in theory should be the cornerstone of effective influence. And those are Israel, Jordan, Egypt, and Turkey. Uh, and, and Turkey at the, at the top of that list because it's, it's actually a formal ally within NATO. So those, those four countries should be the countries that are, that are really actively helping uh, uh, promote U.S. interest in the region because of the colossal amount of military aid and and and, and other cover they get. Um, I would I would argue that Egypt and, and Turkey have been have been actually the worst. However, so despite despite the sort of structural reasons why they should be anchors of, of, of U.S. policy, they are in fact huge uh, spoilers and obstacles and uh, and sources of, of instability um, and. Uh, uh, I'm wondering, I mean, this this could be wishful thinking. I'm wondering if either or both of them see this moment uh, with Biden's election, with an increasing uh, visible political consensus in the, in the United States uh, to end the forever wars and uh, maybe even dial back our, our uh our, our, our basic infrastructure in the Middle East and so on, if they think, huh, maybe we're about to be called out and we're going to lose uh, some of these huge, huge amounts of, of money or military aid that we've grown grown entitled to over the last decades. I mean, I, I would add the Gulf countries to that list. Um, I think, you know, you know Saudi Arabia, uh, the UAE, um, even Qatar. Um, you know, I think what when we see all of these U.S. partners on different sides of various regional conflicts, um, it points to a kind of incoherence to U.S. the U.S. approach to the region. You know, U.S. ties with Qatar have not really diminished, even during the Trump administration. Uh, uh, you know, uh, despite the fact that in the, in, there seemed to be an impulse to want to back uh, the Saudi blockade at first, so you know they they dialed back that policy. Um, but it's hard for the United States to have a coherent regional policy when all of its regional partners are involved in various kinds of disputes and military conflicts against each other. Um, you know, that doesn't make any sense. That's where we find ourselves today. Um, 
but it, it's not a it's not a coherent position um and it's a difficult one and yes i i do think that um you know the te- the uh, the you know, I, I do think the timing with a new administration, you know, I think it's a mistake to always center these around the United States. And, and um, you know, there's a lot that happens uh, in the region, like Nick was mentioning, that is just reflective of agency, you know, what these countries want. Um, but clearly there there has been um, some renewed diplomacy around Yemen. There's some, there is renewed diplomacy around Libya. Uh, and so it does seem... A moment, whether it, it it can sustain itself or not, is a separate question. But a moment in which um, various countries are are thinking about, um, you know, uh, ch- changing tack uh, in in certain ways. Nick, do you see any? Uh, I know this is a little a little far afield from our starting point of, of Egypt and and uh, and Turkey. Do you see any potential for a? Uh, sort of rebalancing between Turkey and the U.S., which have had such a contentious relationship now for so long through multiple administrations? No. Um, short answer, long <laughs> answer, both. <laughs> no. Um, Good to have I some mean, clarity. I, this by, <laughs> I mean, part of the issue, I mean, to be fair, you know, this U.S. frustration with our allies not being on the same page Uh, with Turkey and with Greece goes back a long time. I mean, for 70 years throughout the Cold War, Washington's concern was that Turkey and Greece had their own priorities vis-a-vis each other and did not want to all focus on uh, the Soviet Union all the time. Um, But the reason I think that's gotten worse, it has gotten more incoherent, and also the reason that I think it is going to be difficult to have uh, kind of rebalancing between the U.S. and Turkey is that the kind of strategic vision that you hear repeated in Ankara increasingly seems to be that actually the way Turkey is going to get its rebalancing with the United States is by playing a more assertive regional role, is by throwing its weight around, is by showing that it's a major player, be it diplomatically or militarily in the region, uh, and that the United States, in order to reap the benefits of that, has to accept it and has to embrace it. Um, And so the fact that, you know, I do think when Biden came in, in the midst of enormous geopolitical and uh, domestic political and economic difficulties for Erdogan, there was a tendency or an instinct to dial things down and try to patch things up and at least preserve the illusion of continued good relations. Um, But, you know, I think to the extent that Ankara really does see its route to better relations with the United States in the long term is going through worse relations with the United States in the short term. Uh, That risks bad relations in both the short term and the long term. Right. And, and, uh, and it seems like the, the sort of uh, from the U S perspective, the worst, uh, the worst behaviors of, of Turkey, like, you know, buying a Russian anti-aircraft system, even though uh, uh, Turkey's in NATO, uh, these sorts of things, which are really corrosive to fundamental trust, they're also things that Turkey can get away with because of its geopolitical importance, because of its size, because of uh, the the conflicts on its borders that it's involved in. Uh, and so I wonder if we're, this is yet another one of these uh, dissatisfying circumstances where we're likely to be stuck with this kind of dysfunction and it's long-term sustainable because there's so much that the U.S. and the EU still need and still get from Turkey, 
even when Turkey behaves uh, uh, a bit as a as its own like em- em- empire sized spoiler, that there's just right. nothing to be done about it. I was, I mean, I was going to say, obviously there are things to do to try and manage the impact of these things. I don't mean throw up your hands and, and let them roll, but that, that we can't, we actually can't persuade them or have leverage over them to, to change any of these fundamental behaviors. Right. And get away with it is a slippery term. And I think it's what's made this dynamic continue in that, I mean, that, there's always talk on the EU and the American side of this enormous leverage that the West has over Turkey writ large, and this conviction that if only we used it, we could bring Turkey back in line. Uh, and the United States and the, the Europe have been very slow to use that, in part because of all the reasons you mentioned, that you know they feel like they are dependent on Turkey strategically. Um you know, so they have they have been hesitant to use, and I think will continue to be hesitant to use the full force of their diplomatic and economic leverage. Um, at the same time, you know, what does getting away with it mean for Turkey? Uh, the country's economy is in far worse shape than it was a decade ago. A lot of that has to do with Erdogan's policies, but a lot of that has to do with Turkey's tensions with all of its neighbors. It's isolated in the region. It's not clear it's going to be able to overcome that isolation. You know, it's developed this strange cooperative competitive relationship with Russia, which has gotten at some real gains. Uh, and yet at the same time, I mean, the Turkish backed forces, uh, Turkish forces, you know, themselves are facing a potential catastrophe in Idlib. Uh, Turkey's, you know, now continuing a decades long insurgency against uh, Kurdish separatists that spread over into two different countries. So it's not... I mean, I think that to your point, this is what makes the potential for kind of running ongoing dysfunction so real that both Ankara and uh, the Western capitals have enough reason to continue to make the kind of short-term compromises that will enable the dysfunctional relationship to muddle through. Um, And yet the result certainly isn't good for Turkey and in the long run isn't good for the West either. In in closing, Michael, one last question for you: uh, Can can you deduce from from this particular episode with uh, Egypt and Turkey that uh, that Sisi, despite his many uh, shortcomings, has been sh- shrewd as a as a diplomat? Or what's what's your sort of read of of, of his performance? Well, I think he's been interesting at times as a diplomat. Um, I think a, a little bit more nuanced than in terms of his approach to domestic governance. Uh, and the reason I say that is that, um, you know, Egypt refused to, to intervene um, in, in Yemen at the, beha- you know, following the, uh, the calls to do so by the Saudis. Um, they've been restrained in that sense. They've shied away from um, the sectarian, uh, you know, uh, divisions in the region. They're not particularly concerned with, um, with Iran and, uh, and Iranian pretensions to being some kind of a hegemon. Um, and they've tried to construct power through uh, partnerships. So we see this in the Eastern Med with Greece and, and Israel and, and Cyprus. Um, we see it with uh, the approach to Qatar through the blockade um, and you know the ways in which e- Egypt has engaged uh, in Libya. Uh, with uh, partnering with uh, the UAE and uh, Russia to an extent. Um, And 
you know, I think we've seen more pragmatic approaches of late in, uh, you know, in Gaza, you know, in Libya. Um, and, you know, um, uh, Egypt's also trying to do a kind of bandwagoning now with Sudan um, uh, against Ethiopia. They both have these claims uh, with respect to the to the dam project that Ethiopia is undertaking. Um, and so Egypt is, is, you know, engaged now across the board in a way that it probably wasn't in late stage Mubarak era uh, when it, you know, dipl- so diplomatically moribund uh, a decade ago. Yeah, uh, really focused on in, in, internal issues, uh, things like succession. Um, and, you know, Egypt has, you know, because it has, uh, you know, interests at stake in all of these places, has had to really um, re-engage in places that it wasn't particularly uh, engaged in. Um, and, you know, that's where it finds itself now. Um, you know, it, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult set of situations for Egypt, you know, and um, because of its diminished power, it doesn't have the ability to sort of effectuate policy change on its own. Uh, and so now it finds itself trying to work through partnerships um, uh, to try to increase its, its, uh, its leverage. And that's probably smart for Egypt in its current um, situation. Um, and, you know, you know, one last point, uh, you know, sort of muddling through in a way that reduces tensions that, you know, maybe that's our, the ceiling of our expectations. Um, but it's, it would be better than the, the kind of moment of um, far-flung, you know, military engagements and interventions across the region. So, you know, I, I don't have great, great hopes uh, for what the coming months uh, uh, might, uh, what might unfold in the coming months. Uh, but if it's a kind of dialing down of tensions, um, and a reduction of, of, of violence and conflict, you know, that's that's better than where we've been. Um, and so maybe that's how we should think about what's um, what's on tap. Well, thank you both uh, for coming on the podcast. And I, I found it really refreshing to to talk about all these uh, uh, events with with a sort of primacy of place to regional actors and not just to far you know far away superpowers. You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's International Affairs Podcast. I've been joined today by Nick Danforth, Senior Visiting Fellow at the Atlantic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy, and Michael Waheedhan, a Senior Fellow at the Century Foundation. Thank you both for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you. been listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. Till next time.